I've got a little spicy question for you. Um, you're allowed to say whatever you want, of course, and we are behind the paywall. But I think we need to grapple now with Society of the Spectacle as a historical document. And the way yeah. I want to start that is by, <clears throat> you know, DeBoard has a whole section uh, towards the end of the book on uh, talking about uh, state capitalist or Stalinist bureaucracies such as they existed, right? He calls, say, the Soviet Union, uh, he w- actually existing socialism, he would call it concentrated spectacle, right? So yeah. it's the flip side of a diffuse spectacle, which is like capitalist commodity society, right, that exists in in opposition and in, in pseudo opposition, that is to say, uh, right. the, the Soviet Union. So there's that. And then, so that, so that's obviously foregrounds his political analysis. Um, but now of course we don't have a Soviet Union. We don't have a, at least in this case, a, so, a pseudo opposition to mm. uh, capitalist commodity society. So I wonder yeah. what we do with society of spectacle, right? Is what, yeah. how do we relate now practically to what's written in this book? given that social material conditions, political conditions are so different than they were, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic question, Sean. I mean, not to bring up cured quail again, but um, in in our first volume, Paul Maddock does a really good job of situating DeBoard's book within that um, Keynesian, you know, stimulus period, post-war prosperity, post-war abundance. And so Paul has, um, you know, interesting critique of, well, you know, the book itself might have been important at the time, but this seems to render it, um, you know, sort of totally impertinent after the 70s. Um, And I mean, it's an interesting point, but I think there is something about the board's critique here that is not reducible to its own historical moment. That's not simply reducible to post-war abundance. Now to, to, to sort of address the issue, right? Yeah. The world is no longer divided into these global blocks, mm-hmm. right? That the uh, board was describing, but that doesn't mean that um, there's some important instruction there on what something like spectacular unity uh, might mean. So what I mean there is, okay, the board's critique at the time was that these two power blocks seem to be at each other's throat, right? They seem to be mortal enemies and have absolutely nothing in common. Of course, part of the board's critique and the SI's critique was to demonstrate, well, no, actually, they do have a lot in common. Um, you know, let's just like look a little bit closer. So the, the question now is, OK, um, do we see pseudo opposition today? Mm. Um, I would certainly say that we don't see it in these big power blocks, you know, these be big geopolitical divisions. Um, but if we were to sort of, um, you know, pivot that kind of uh, framework to a more micro level, I think we're going to find pseudo oppositions all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to find pseudo oppositions between, um, you know, competing political contenders. I think we're going to find pseudo opposition between competing cereal brands. I think we're going to find pseudo oppositions between um, even different grassroots political organizations. Um, I think they're all over the place. Um one stupid example, and it probably is the most superficial example, but it's just off the cuff, is, uh, you know, when, when did this happen? This debate or this discussion with Zizek and Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah, right? a year and a half ago. You know, and this is a kind of myopic example, and but we can expand that example to more serious ones, right? But what do we have in a situation like that, right? We have two different fan bases going, oh, yeah, they're going to one opponent is going to destroy the other. But, you know, there are many sort of unifying conditions which rendered them totally commensurable with Mm. one another, totally commensurable. 
And I think that the value of DeBoard's critique is in sort of discovering where commensurability is um, sort of pretending to be authentic difference, right? And I think we find that even just when we exchange two different commodities, right? We're, we're, we're made to understand them to be two completely different things, but through the form of money, all of a sudden they speak the same language. And so if you sort of extrapolate that commodity logic to society as a whole, which is just riddled with pseudo oppositions, um, you're going to get the value and the pertinence of, of the board's critique of the society of the spectacle. Yeah, and part of why I wanted to emphasize this, uh, this kind of implied, implied positivity towards class struggle uh, in the sections that I read is because with the depth of a critique like DeBoard's, it's, it sort of renders everything insufficient. Um, so, for example, the Situationist wrote a very popular critique of student life, a critique of, of leftist militancy, you know, the, the cadre formulations of the Trotskyists and the Proto-Maoists. Um, right. But nonetheless, they were participants in, you know, like, uh, for example, May 68, they were major participants in, in the, this committee for maintaining school occupations that, you know, right. spread and led to riots and eventually led to a general strike, even though that they, they I think they had this, like, at least rhetorical disdain for, st- for student activism and student and, and leftist militancy. They uh, they were there and they were trying to push things forward with their critique in a way that was authentic to themselves, not as like, um, you know, undercover entryist or something. Uh, so I guess yeah. like for our listeners who, you know, want to uh, be involved in, in class trickle today, how, how do you think situationism might help them? Oh, Jesus. Um, I think <laughs> You're on the hot seat, buddy. Uh, I mean, I think it's a matter of uh, sort of allowing our crit- our critique of the conditions of society to be as ambitious as possible. Uh, that doesn't mean sort of confining itself to, you know, um, partial problems or problems that are sort of, you know, too particularistic in society. I think the, the fundamental virtue, right, of the situationist critique is that, um, you know, our criticism of this society needs to be of the society, right? We cannot sort of just simply um, be satisfied with half measures or give ourselves over only to particular struggles. It's rather a matter of understanding um, this society, you know, as a whole. So, you know, in this lovely example of, um, you know, student struggles, uh, Andy, I mean, uh, the three of us happen to have this kind of background <laughs> in intense uh, student struggle in New York City many years ago. Criminal and otherwise, yes. Right. And there was always this issue, right, of um, how much do we want this struggle to remain simply um, an issue of students? Right. What is the possibility or how does this um, you know, struggle of students um, stand as indicative yes. to, to you know, wider social problems, irresolvable social problems? So one involves themselves in the dynamics there and tries to grasp what the particular factors are at play there, but with an eye um, to, um, you know, their fundamental relation to society as a whole. Um, So I think a critique that upholds this idea of totality, um, I mean, I think that's one of the most long lasting um, um, tools or, you know, sort of guiding principles we can take from the activities of the um, situationists, but also just in terms of base activism, not, not to, um, you know, not to sort of confine ourselves to the same old tactics, Mm -hmm. right. To the same old tactics that produce the same old results 
But there's no problem in being a little bit experimental, uh, a little bit bombastic and, um, you know, a little bit provocative in how we are intervening and criticizing this society. 